Our episodes deal with serious and often distressing incidents and may not be suitable for children. If you struggle with addiction, feel depressed or have suicidal thoughts and you need support, please contact your local crisis centre or reach out to a friend to ask for help. And if you don't believe the sun will rise, stand alone and greet the coming night in the last remaining light. Chris Cornell May 18th, 2017 The MGM Grand Hotel, Detroit A 911 call is placed at 12.56am by a hotel employee. They report a non-responsive guest inside room 1136. The guest was attempting to hang himself, the caller says. The 911 operator asks, He's not breathing? No, says the caller. The guest is Chris Cornell, the troubled godfather of grunge, the lead singer and songwriter of groundbreaking Seattle rock band Soundgarden and Audio Slave. Alone in an empty hotel room, after his final performance at Fox Theatre in Detroit. Cornell had finally lost his lifelong battle against prescription drug addiction and depression that led to too many suicidal thoughts. Sadly, the Roxa had finally answered Angel Azrael's calling. Speaking about depression in 1999, Cornell said, No one really knows what the -the run-of-the-mill depression is. You'll think somebody has run-of-the-mill depression, and then the next thing you know, they're hanging from a rope. It's hard to tell the difference. What compelled Chris Cornell on May 18th, 2017 to take his final bow and leave this world and his loved ones behind? Had it been pre-planned, or was it a deliberate and conscious decision? Had the effects of having seven different prescribed drugs in his system played an important role in his demise. Cornell's wife, Vicky, is adamant it was the effects of prescribed medication. She and Chris's family were disturbed by the media's insinuation that Chris knowingly and intentionally took his life. They believed he could never do that to his family. Sadly, it appears the beloved 52-year-old singer, often lauded as the greatest rock vocalist of all time, was now just a beloved memory. Eerily, just about a year before his death, Cornell mused prophetically in a Rolling Stone article about David Bowie. You don't know how important someone is to you as an artistic influence until suddenly they're gone. Sadly, he was right. Join us on a supernatural journey as we explore the dark side of rock and roll, reveal the shocking details, and explore the mystical facts behind the life and mysterious death of Chris Cornell. This is Death by Misadventure. Chris Cornell was born Christopher John Boyle on July 20th, 1964, in Seattle, Washington, under the zodiac sign of cancer. He came from what he described as alcoholic parents who had too many kids to keep an eye on. His father, Edward F. Boyle, 
was a pharmacist of Irish Catholic background. His mother, Karen Cornell, was an accountant and psychic of Jewish faith. Cornell was the middle child of six children. He had two older brothers and three younger sisters. In his early years, he attended Christ the King Catholic Elementary School, where he performed for the first time in front of a crowd, singing the 1960s anti-war song, One Tin Soldier. He later attended Shawwood High School. When he was in seventh grade, however, his mother pulled him and his sister out of Catholic school. Cornell later claimed it was because they were about to be expelled for being too inquisitive. Cornell recalled the episode in a 1994 interview. With a religion like that, it's not designed for anyone to question. Being young people who have a natural curiosity and half a brain, you're going to start finding inconsistencies, which there are tons of in organized religion. We both sort of made it clear in classroom situations that we didn't get it. Explain this to me. And they couldn't. So he started creating a lot of problems. Cornell's early musical influences included the legendary Little Richard. However, after finding a large collection of Beatles records abandoned in the basement of a neighbor's home, Cornell spent a two-year period between the ages of nine and 11 solidly listening to the Beatles. By this time, he was something of a loner who was keenly aware of his social anxiety around other people, a situation that was to shadow him throughout his life. It was around this time he realized he could deal with his anxiety through listening to and absorbing rock music. His teenage years were troubled ones and he seemed spiraled into a severe depression, dropped out of high school and became a recluse, almost never leaving the house. Cornell took piano and guitar lessons as a child and was given a snare drum by his mother as a gift. According to Cornell, music saved his life. It was the guitar he chose when setting out on his rock and roll path, though initially had no burning desire to be the star he would later become. Music was just something he loved and wanted to be a part of. As he said in previous interviews, he was not looking to be an Axl Rose. In those days of teenage development, Cornell worked miscellaneous jobs to help his mother pay the bills. He worked for a time as a busboy, a dishwasher, a fish handler, and a sous chef at Ray's Boathouse in Seattle. Gradually, Cornell became a good enough drummer to start joining pub bands. It was the only thing I had an attention span for, he said in the previous interview. When you're young, playing drums is immediately satisfying, because whether or not you know how to play anything, the bottom line is, is that you're pounding on something, so you're happy about it. Cornell was in many bands during his late teens, early 20s, but there were only cover bands, he was more interested in, and on the lookout for, musicians to write songs with. He would be in a band for one week, get bored and leave to find another. It was a pattern that continued until the early 80s, when he joined the Shemps. They too were a cover band, but importantly, it was through this group that Cornell met bass player Hiro Yamamoto, and guitarist Kim Thail, who would soon join him in forming Soundgarden. Initially, Soundgarden was formed in 1984 with Yamamoto, Thayil and Cornell. Later, while Thayil, Cornell and Cameron would continue to be key members of Soundgarden, Yamamoto would later be replaced with bassist Ben Shepard in 1990. The band was one of the seminal creators of grunge, a style of alternative rock that developed in Seattle, and was one of several grunge bands signed to the record label Sub Pop. Soundgarden was the first grunge band to sign to a major label, a Records in 1989. 
Though the bands did not achieve commercial success until Seattle contemporaries Pearl Jam, Nirvana, and Alice in Chains entered the 1990s Seattle scene. In the 1990s, Seattle became music's ground zero, with Soundgarden, Pearl Jam, and Nirvana exploding to become the hottest rock bands on the planet. Their 1994 album, Super Unknown, was the band's biggest hit, going straight in at number one on the Billboard 200. With Grammy award-winning singles Black Hole Sun and Spoon Man emanating from it, Later, the album would go on to sell more than 3 million copies worldwide. Three weeks later, Nirvana's Kurt Cobain shot himself. Two months later, Kristen Pfaff, bassist for Courtney Love's band Hole, died of a heroin overdose. All of which brought back memories of March 1990, when an overdose took the life of Cornell's former roommate Andrew Wood, the frontman for Mother Love Bone. Cornell was a close friend of late singer Andrew Wood, who was his roommate in Seattle. While living together, Cornell and Wood recorded the song Island of Summer, which was written by Cornell and is the only existing recording from the two of them singing together. But Cornell, a true son of Seattle, with his shoulder-length sub-pop cavalier tresses and distinctive thin beard, could remember a time when his hometown wasn't just the home of rock tragedy. Screaming Life, Soundgarden's 1987 debut EP, was the second release on the influential sub-pop label. It was the brainchild of co-owners Jonathan Poneman and Bruce Pavitt. Soundgarden's mix of 70s heavy metal and 80s punk ushered in a new rock and roll era and prompted Nirvana to want to record for sub-pop. Cornell even married within the rock music scene. His first wife, Susan Silver, once managed the U-Men before managing Soundgarden and Alice in Chains. Reflecting on the Seattle scene, Cornell told Rolling Stone magazine, It's hard not to be a little bitter about it. We lost good friends in the process, and all of a sudden you realise that it's turned into something that's considered a fashion statement. It's like mining. It's like somebody's coming into your city with bulldozers and water compressors to mine your own perfect mountain. To him, it felt as though they excavated it and threw out all they didn't want and left the rest to rot. It's that bad. Cornell clearly felt as though the one true outlet he had for expressing his recurring depression had been abused and milked for all it had. He felt that the Seattle scene that he had once prospered in had become diluted and confused. He went on to say, We benefited as a band. We've made any statement we wanted to make about music and about who we are, but it doesn't really come across in terms of what Seattle was like. We weren't so much a part of it as a lot of other bands. No one really knew us. We didn't go to parties, but at the same time, when a lot of other bands from Seattle started having success and getting attention, we were proud to be amongst that and a part of that, and it felt good. But outside of the people that were involved with the Seattle scene when it was happening, the rest of the country and the world, and probably a lot of the bands that play in Seattle now, think that what the Seattle scene was about is Soundgarden, Pearl Jam, Nirvana, and Alice in Chains guitar-based rock with punk influences and 70s influences. Period. End of story. And that's so far from what was going on. What was left out was the completely experimental music 
from free jazz to theatrical bands to a lot of very gothic bent bands. Other people who were part of the scene that we were in. A lot of them were either exploited or fucked over by the whole thing, or completely passed on because they didn't fit into the narrow perception of what Seattle had to offer. It is clear, even from this 1994 interview, that Cornell, despite his huge success as an artist and the loving family he had around him, was still battling his inner demons, anxiety and depression. This grim outlook, in spite of continued success, would be a persistent problem for Cornell until the time of his death. The band called it quits in 1997, weeks after an ugly final concert in Hawaii that ended with Cornell and drummer Cameron playing a few songs by themselves after Shepard walked off in frustration over faulty gear and Thayil followed him. At the time, Cornell says, tensions within the band were high and communication was at a low. But for a band that had thundered its way to prominence, Soundgarden just seemed to sort of fizzle out. The one thing about Soundgarden most people don't get is that we always got along, said Cornell in a spin interview. We drank, and any band that drinks is going to have chaos, but we never had the internal negativity that usually spells the obvious reasons a band breaks up. After Soundgarden split, Cornell tried to transition to a solo career, but almost immediately he ran into problems during the making of his 1999 debut, Euphoria Morning. It was mentally, physically and spiritually a fucked up point in my life, he said. I was waking up and drinking a glass of vodka just to get a dial tone. My marriage wasn't working at all, and rather than face that, I turned to constant inebriation and then drugs. Cornell's next band, Audio Slave, was formed in Los Angeles in 2001. The four-piece band consisted of Cornell vocals and rhythm guitar, with former Rage Against the Machine members Tom Morello, lead guitar, Tim Comerford, bass, backing vocals, and Brad Wilk, drums. Initially, Audio Slave Sound was described as a hybrid of Soundgarden and Rage Against the Machine. However, with the band's second album, Out of Exile, it was clear that they had established their own identity. When Audio Slave released their debut the following year, Cornell's substance abuse problems had gotten worse. He landed in rehab and cleaned up. Then he split with his wife Susan Silver in 2002 and finalised their divorce in 2004 leaving his ex-wife and daughter Lillian Jean behind. But that wasn't the end of the battles between the two. After Cornell left rehab, he was emotionally and spiritually ready to embark on a new life. He met his wife Vicky while on tour with Audio Slave in France at a party, and it was love at first sight. He later proposed to her in 2003, and the couple married in 2004. It was a whirlwind romance, and Cornell was ready to leave his past behind and move to Paris to start a family with his new wife. However, his ex-wife Susan and daughter Lillian felt abandoned, and their divorce settlement had gotten even uglier. In 2005, Cornell initiated a $1 million lawsuit, alleging that his ex-wife and business manager had defrauded him of musical royalties and never returned, among other things, his Grammys, musical recordings, and some personal journals. 
Two years later, he would file a restraining order against a man he said Silver had hired to stalk his new family. His ex-wife had no intentions of making his new life easy. In 2008, Cornell wrote on his website that his ex-wife Silver had finally returned his 15 guitars. He wrote, It seems to me that some strangely desperate people involved in the music business forget that they are not the ones that write these songs. We spill our guts and expose ourselves to the public on the most personal level. We invent this shit and fucking own it, and no matter what, nothing will change that. Later, in a spin interview, Silver said she was disappointed that the divorce battles went public. During that turbulent time, Cornell and his wife Vicky went on to have two beautiful children, a daughter Tony and son Christopher. Cornell's downward spiral into the world of drugs began at the tender age of just 12. He began experimenting with alcohol, marijuana, acid, mushrooms, and prescription drugs. He was a full-blown addict by the age of 14 until he turned to music. Cornell revealed in an interview that at the age of 14, he had a horrible PCP angel dust experience. He was quoted as saying, I got a panic disorder, and of course, I wasn't telling anyone the truth. It's not like you're going to go to your dad or your doctor and say, yeah, I smoke PCP, and I'm having a bad time. So I became agoraphobic because I'd have flashbacks from 14 to 16. I didn't have any friends. I stayed home most of the time. During that time, Cornell started to drink a lot, and eventually he fell back into drugs. He said, you often hear that pot leads to harder drugs, but I think alcohol is what leads you to everything because it takes away the fear. The worst drug experimentation I ever did was because I was drunk and I just didn't care. Music may have given Cornell a temporary reprieve from his self-inflicted seclusion, but thoughts of suicide were clearly still knocking on his door. He later revealed in a 1996 Rolling Stone interview, I know what it feels like to be suicidal, and I know what it feels like to feel hopeless. There is some point where I learned enough about myself to know that I don't have the tolerance to create other hurdles as well. Did Cornell indicate his suicidal thoughts in his lyrics? Could family or friends have known that the end was near through his music? Some may argue that you can. However, when Rolling Stone asked him if it's legitimate to read a songwriter's demise from his lyrics, Cornell said, When Andy died, I couldn't listen to his songs for about two years after that, and it was for that reason. His lyrics often seemed as though they can tell the story, but then again, my lyrics often could tell the same one, in terms of seeing everything as a matter of life and death. If that's what you're feeling at the time, then that's what you're going to write. Cornell continued to struggle with depression and multiple addictions throughout the 80s and 90s, which eventually led to the demise of his band Soundgarden and his marriage to Susan Silver. What was going through the mind of Chris Cornell when he chose to end his life in a Detroit hotel room in the early hours of May 19th? Family and friends may never know, but it does appear his behavior around that time was cause for alarm to those who knew him well. A Detroit photographer who watched Cornell perform what would be his final concert 
says he saw unusual behavior in the singer during the show. We now know he had been taking doses of antidepressant Ativan and early that evening had posted a cryptic tweet. Detroit, finally back to Rock City, no more bullshit. Eerily, Cornell chose to end Soundgarden's final set at Detroit Fox Theater with a few lines from Led Zeppelin's classic, In My Time of Dying. Video footage captured the final moments of Cornell singing, Meet me, Jesus, meet me. Meet me in the middle of the air. If my wings should fail me, Lord, please meet me with another pair. In my time of dying, want nobody to mourn. All I want for you to do is to take my body home. A few hours later, the singer would hang himself in his hotel bathroom. He left no suicide note. A Detroit police report revealed that Cornell had gone to his hotel room shortly after the Fox Theater gig. At around 11.15 p.m., Martin Kirsten, the band's bodyguard, gave Cornell two doses of Ativan. At 11.35, Cornell received a phone call from his wife, Vicki, who had called to see if he was okay. She told police he was slurring his words, sounding groggy and repeatedly told her, I'm just tired. At 12.15 a.m., his wife, concerned about what she heard on the phone, asked the bodyguard to check on her husband. Kirsten, the bodyguard, walked two doors down to room 1136 and found the door locked. He immediately called security to request entry, but they refused to open the door for him, so he kicked the door open. He found the latch had been engaged on the bathroom door, preventing him from getting in. He again phoned security, but was, for a second time, refused access. Encountering the second locked door, Kirsten kicked it open as well and found Cornell lying on the bathroom floor. He had blood running from his mouth and a red exercise band around his neck. An MGM medic, Don Jones, was on the scene by 12.56 a.m. and untied the band from around Cornell's neck and began CPR on the singer. A short time later, EMS Unit 42 arrived on the scene and an emergency medical technician also tried to perform CPR unsuccessfully. By 1.30 a.m., Cornell was pronounced dead at the scene by a doctor. Homicide detectives also arrived to investigate while an officer called Vicki Cornell to report on her husband's death. Later that day, the medical examiner pronounced the rock star's death was ruled a suicide. On Friday, May 19th, Vicki Cornell and the family's attorney released a statement that they disagreed with the Wayne County Medical Examiner's conclusion that Cornell died after committing suicide. His family stated he was a recovering addict with a prescription for the anti-anxiety medication Ativan and believed he had exceeded his recommended dosage that night. The family stated that if Chris had committed suicide, drugs or other substances might have affected his actions. The Ativan prescription had side effects of paranoid or suicidal thoughts, slurred speech, and impaired judgment. 
The day after Cornell's death, Men's Health magazine republished a 2006 interview with the singer where he revealed his private struggle with depression. He said, For me, I have always had one foot in this dark, lonely, and isolated world. Then, in the early 90s, I got very dark, and there was a ton of isolation. I had to do a lot of things I didn't want to do, like I had to admit that I'd made all the mistakes I assumed I would never make. I changed pretty much everything you can change. The city that I live in, every person that I spend time with, I got a divorce, but then fell in love in a way that I didn't know I was capable of, and then felt love in a way I didn't know I was capable of. I quit drinking, quit smoking, and suddenly I had all this energy. Another magazine, Billboard, spoke to a panel of mental health experts about suicide, depression, and the dangers of taking increased doses of prescription medication and or mixing them with other drugs. Suicide doesn't discriminate, forensic psychiatrist Dr. Vasilis K. Posios told Billboard. Under the facade of fame, celebrities may be suffering inside, he said. We might forget that the causes of suicide, most often depression, are rooted in a biological disorder of the brain. The problem, he said, is that suicide is notoriously difficult to predict. People who are depressed may also turn to drugs and alcohol to self-medicate the symptoms they experience. He went on to add that people considering suicide usually reach a tipping point and act within five or ten minutes so that it can be brewing but then something happens or their emotions take over. Chris Cornell's wife would later publish a letter in the media addressed to her husband a few days after his death saying she was sorry she didn't see what happened to him that night. On May 18th, Chris Cornell played to a sold-out crowd in Detroit. Little did fans realize it would be his final concert, and just a few hours later, he would be pronounced dead after hanging himself in a lonely hotel suite. What happened that night to push him over the edge? I turned to the astrological stars to see what story his birth chart would tell. In the early morning of May 18th, the moon was in erratic Aquarius and was the driver of his inner emotions that day. I believe his personal demons had returned to haunt him one last time and decided to orchestrate how his final song would end. His tortured past had caught up with him, and in a moment of sadness, Cornell, in his depressed state, may have felt that his family and friends would be better without him. To find the answers to these questions, I had to dig a little deeper into his astrological chart and explore what secrets it revealed about Cornell's chronic depression. Cornell was born on July 20, 1964, under the zodiac sign of sensitive cancer. Wistful, shy, and mysterious, the water ran deep for this troubled rock star. In interviews, he was candid about how he constantly battled a tidal wave of emotions and was always in a perpetual state of either sinking or swimming. We know now that Cornell suffered from depression and social anxiety for most of his life. He self-medicated for years by abusing drugs and alcohol. This is a typical cancer approach to depression, 
and many people born under the zodiac sign might not even acknowledge that they have a problem. Instead, they sweep everything under the rug and put on a brave face. In Cornell's case, he chose to channel his emotional pain into his music. Cornell seemed to be typical of his zodiac sign, as he openly admitted that he didn't seek treatment for a long time, and he would party, drink, and take drugs to mask his anxiety and depression. His moon in Sagittarius squared Saturn and Pisces, which compounded his issues of insecurity and feelings of abandonment. On the bright side, Cornell's moon in Sag made him a spiritual truth-seeker. His last charity project was for a film about the Armenian Genocide, and he wrote the song The Promise for the soundtrack. Fortunately, he would find true love with his wife Vicky Cornell, a Leo, who shared his moon in Sag, creating the romantic connection he craved. Together, they shared an intuitive understanding of one another and a deep emotional bond. Not all his fans may have understood their relationship, and I believe they have unfairly blamed her for his death. His chart reveals they deeply loved each other, and if anything, she tried to protect him from the ugly demons that were always lurking in the shadows. His superstar status was cemented by his Venus and Mars conjunct in Gemini. It gave him a magnetic sex appeal that was attractive to both men and women. This astrological aspect opposes his moon in Sag, which reveals he had difficult issues with his mom and women in general, and constantly feared intimacy and emotions. His chart reveals a man with an impulsive nature and trust issues in relationships. Cornell never completely felt safe in this world and continued to be haunted by his past. He continued to bury his fears inside, only for those hidden thoughts to come rushing out like a tsunami. In the end, his chart reveals a man overwhelmed by his emotions. In a moment of despair, he flirted with the idea of death, and the angels heard his cries and gently carried him away into the afterlife. Chris Cornell entered the music world with the life path number 11. He was an intuitive soul who shunned the spotlight and fame became a double-edged sword for the moody rock star. As much as some number 11s want attention, they are sensitive to outside criticism and take things to heart very easily. Cornell struggled throughout his life with addiction issues and depression, and I believe it was amplified by the insecurity of his number vibration. When Cornell died, he was in a personal year number one. It was the beginning of a new life cycle, and it can be an emotional period for a person with addiction issues. Two other people close to Cornell also have the life path number 11, namely Kim Thiel, the lead guitarist of Soundgarden, and his ex-wife and former band manager, Susan Silver. Together, all three, I believe, had a soul contract to create the magical and karmic journey behind Soundgarden. During his downward spiral into drugs and alcohol, I can see in his numerology chart that Cornell and his ex-wife were locked in an emotional battle for control. He accused Susan of withholding musical royalties and even failing to return the Grammys he previously won for his music. Jealousy played a huge factor in the ugly demise of their marriage. Unfortunately, it got very toxic between the former lovers and business partners. And this was partially because they both shared the life path number 11. In a favorable light, the 11 energy represents harmony and balance. 
And on the flip side in relationships, it can become an ocean of bitterness and regret. As for Chris's second wife, Vicky Cornell, she has the life path number one. And this shows a role reversal in their marriage. Vicky was the protector of the relationship and had a more paternal role, and Chris would have been more of a maternal figure. In this sense, she took care of Chris, and they built a solid family unit until his tragic death. A woman like Vicky with the life path number one is often a good match for a man like Cornell with the number 11. The couple fostered a relationship based on love and mutual respect. She was a grounding force for the more sensitive rock star, and together they became best friends and life partners. They shared a special soulmate vibration and a more karmic relationship with his ex-wife, Susan Silver. His first marriage set him on a path to fame and fortune, whereas his relationship with Vicky was more about creating the family dynamic he never had growing up. But ultimately, she could not save him from the emotional dark forces that consumed him. In a Rolling Stone interview, Cornell once admitted to a frightening habit, something I've done since I was a kid, of opening windows and imagining what it would be like to jump. He was a lost soul, always living on the edge. Sadly, in the end, the room 1136 played a pivotal role in Cornell's final hours. And yes, when you add the numbers together, it equals 11. Coincidence? Maybe, but I don't think so. The number 11 in the tarot deck is the Justice card and ruled by Libra. Justice represents a conscious awareness that your decisions and actions have had long-term consequences for yourself and those you love. A decision was required, and in Cornell's case, he chose to take his life. Suicide is a devastating tragedy, one that leaves friends, family, and loved ones confused, frustrated, and sometimes even angry. Lost, asking themselves, could we have done something? More than anything, it's heartbreaking, leaving loved ones feeling helpless and left with more questions than answers. Had Cornell completed his soul contract on Earth and was simply ready to meet his maker, or did a supernatural force push him over the edge? His family cremated Cornell's body on May 23, 2017, and held his funeral on May 26, 2017, at the Hollywood Forever Cemetery in Los Angeles. It was attended by rock royalty and included Soundgarden members Kim Thayall, Matt Cameron, and Ben Shepard, and former members Hiro Yamamoto and Scott Sunquist along with audio slaves Tom Morello and Pearl Jam Temple of the Dog members Jeff Ament and Mike McCready. The mourners included friends Brad Pitt, Cornell's wife and their children, his entire family, as well as his ex-wife Susan Silver and their daughter Lillian. Attendees also included many notable musicians like Chester Bennington who sang the beautiful song Hallelujah, in memory of his good friend. Sadly, Chester Bennington would later commit suicide a few months later on July 20th, which fell exactly on Cornell's birthday. Many paid tribute to the late singer in their way, 
From simple gestures and dedications, letters, performances, and more, it seems like the whole rock community was in mourning. Seattle's Space Needle Observation Tower went dark from 9 to 10 p.m. local time on May 18, 2017, in honor of their long-lost musical son, Cornell, and to thank him for his contributions to the city's vibrant music scene. In the same evening, Ann Wilson paid tribute to Cornell singing Soundgarden's Black Hole Sun on Jimmy Kimmel's Live. Soundgarden's drummer, Matt Cameron, was the first of Cornell's former bandmates to comment on his death, saying, My dark night is gone via Facebook. Pearl Jam, who Cameron also drums for, released a tribute on their website with a picture of Cornell entitled Chris. Cornell's audio slave bandmate Tom Morello wrote a poem in tribute to his bandmate. Alice and Chains paid tribute with a photo of Cornell on their social media pages and the caption, We are heartbroken. During his solo concert in London on June 6, 2017, Eddie Vedder talked for the first time about Cornell's death, saying, He wasn't just a friend. He was someone I looked up to like my older brother, and I will live with those memories in my heart, and I will love him forever. On Cornell's 53rd birthday on July 20th, 2017, Pearl Jam guitarist Stone Gossard, who played with Cornell in Temple of the Dog, wrote a letter to him in a post on Pearl Jam's official website. Cornell and Gossard share the same birthday. Cornell's Soundgarden bandmate Matt Cameron paid homage in his first solo album titled Cave Dweller, with the inscription for Chris on the vinyl version of the album, which was released on September 22, 2017. Cornell heard the album two months before his death and was very supportive of Cameron's solo debut. On July 10, 2017, the song Man of Golden Words, Mother Love Bone, was released by singer Victor Breithaupt. He dedicated the song to both Andrew Wood and Chris Cornell, two musicians taken too early from this world. Addiction and depression are sadly nothing new in the music business. In the last year, we've lost too many beautiful souls, from Chris Cornell to Prince and Chester Bennington to Tom Petty. Anyone who cares about an addict has a laundry list of concerns. The number one worry is that one day, addiction may take your loved one's life. Mostly we fear getting word of a serious accident, a possible relapse, or even worse, a drug overdose but not suicide. For any recovering addict, staying sober can be a daily struggle. In an exclusive interview with GMA this week, Chris Cornell's wife, Vicki, addressed her husband's final journey home. He loved his life. 
He would have never left this world, Vicky told Robin Roberts. Our family was his everything. As soon as he got off stage, he was a dad. He was a regular dad. However, Vicky said, his demeanor began to change after Chris was prescribed a powerful painkiller earlier that year to help deal with a shoulder injury that was keeping him awake at night. She blamed the prescription drug for her husband's slide back into addiction. She said he experienced delayed speech, he was forgetful, because the brain of someone with a substance abuse disorder is different from that of someone who doesn't have one. In the aftermath of Chris's death, she wants to help get rid of the stigma that surrounds addiction. She says, you think addiction is a choice, and it's not. I think that if there was less stigma around it, more people would speak up. My husband was the furthest thing from a rock star junkie. He just wasn't. He was the best husband, the greatest father. I lost my soulmate and the love of my life. In memory of her husband, she announced this week that she's joined the Addiction Policy Forum Advisory Board to help other families affected by the disease of addiction. After Chris Cornell was laid to rest, his big brother, Peter, posted an emotional letter on Facebook to friends and fans. He wrote, I cannot deny the pain of this loss. In some ways, I cling to it, refusing to let go because I want to keep my little brother close, even if all that's left are memories. At least we are rich with memories. I replay them all too often, starting with our childhood and reliving the glory that was Seattle in the 90s. Pearl Jam bassist Jeff Ament said of Cornell, he was a beautiful wordsmith. If you look at his lyrics, he obviously was processing his pain and depression and all of those things. I think that's part of what people, myself included, responded to when he was singing. With the songwriting, he had that voice. There's not too many people that have that many options with their voice. He could do a lot of different things with it and have a lot of different characters in that voice. I feel so lucky that I got to be in a project with him, got to hang out with him and just sort of witness his greatness. His wife Vicky wrote, You are the best father, husband and son-in-law. Your patience, empathy and love always showed through. I'm broken, but I will stand up for you and I will take care of our beautiful babies. I will think of you every minute of every day and I will fight for you. You were right when you said we are soulmates. It has been said that paths that have crossed will cross again and I know that you will come find me and I will be here waiting. The final song Chris Cornell sang on stage the night he died was In My Time of Dying, a traditional gospel song recorded by Bob Dylan and Led Zeppelin, among others. In my time of dying, I want nobody to mourn. All I want for you to do is take my body home. Chris Cornell, a complex and beautiful soul tormented by his own sensitivity and emotion. Whether he intentionally chose to take his own life or fell victim to the delirious effects of too much prescription medication, we may never know. What we do know and can say for sure is that Chris Cornell will forever be remembered as a rock icon 
who touched many lives with his poignant lyrics and gave voice to an entire generation 